welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we continue our study in the book of Proverbs with chapter 7. And I have to start by backtracking a little bit. I've been following the Lutheran Study Bible's outline that has a series of addresses to sons. And I'm going to just back out of that series. They were suggesting, and I was using the number 9, I realize it's actually 10. Today, chapter 7 gives us our 10th address. But the words, my son, just as a phrase to start a section, do show up more than 10 times in the book. In fact, it'll still show up a few more times later on in the book, but they stop counting. So I'm curious where the Lutheran Study Bible's addresses of the son idea came from. And if you any of you have a background of that and know more about it, shoot me a message. I'd, I'd love to know more. But until then, we're just going to go back to the idea that so far everything in this book has been written addressed to the son or sons of Solomon. He's seeking to take his wisdom the Lord has blessed him with and pass that along so that it's not lost. So here he again advise, advises his son. And this text is very similar to what we've seen already in the book. The focus returns to the adulteress. He wants his sons to have nothing to do with adulteresses. Let's read chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is the word of the Lord. And I think you can tell what a passionate plea this was from Solomon that his sons would not give in to adultery. And again, take that two ways. Take that both as literal adultery by chasing after women in this world who are not their wives, but also the adultery that is 
rejecting God and turning to paganism, turning to idols, breaking that first commandment, which God in the Old Testament, describing himself as our husband, Israel as his, his bride, or the church in the New Testament as the bride of Christ, to go after false gods, to worship others, is idolatry. It is adultery against the Lord in that way because we're breaking that, that marriage picture that is being given to us as well. Now, I would invite you to have a family conversation about why so much focus on this topic. Chapter 2 had it briefly, but chapters 5, 6, and 7 have been really driving this home as we work our way through the text. Why? Why stay on this topic? Why not uh, one chapter and move on? Why were the repetition? Repetition aids us in our learning quite significantly. And so to hear something again and again is part of the way we memorize it. So for Solomon's sons to see how much dad is emphasizing this, to see how much wisdom is in these words, uh, to repeat them again and again, gives that intensifying, that emphasis to this text and to this idea that this really is that deadly as he's describing it. There's also the idea that we need to be reminded again and again and again. So we have daily sin in our lives that we should confess and hear that forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us. That's a one-time event, right? He did that on Golgotha, on Mount Calvary, on the cross, bleeding and dying, side pierced. It only happened once, and that forgiveness was for every sin of all time, and yet to hear that spoken word of forgiveness, to receive Christ's body and blood on our lips, as often as possible is still a benefit to us because uh, we are sinners and our sinful nature likes to look away. It likes to be adulterous. It likes to chase after the things of this world instead of seeking the Lord. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you from Matthew chapter 6. So emphasis, repetition is beneficial to the sinner. He's stressing just how important this is for his sons to know. Now, the pattern is pretty normal, uh, again, with these addresses to the sons, if you want to call them that, um, that they would listen to his instruction, that they would not turn their back on it, but rather keep his commands and live. This is what God says in Leviticus chapter 18, specifically verse 5. God said, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. This is the Old Testament prescription, right? If you could keep God's law perfectly, there would be no need for salvation. But we can't. None of us have. Not one. The only one to keep the law of God perfectly was Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he did it because we didn't. He came to fulfill that law in order to rescue us from under the law. A major theme of the New Testament, certainly. That does not, however, mean that there's not benefit to the law yet for the people of God. That living in the law, obeying the law, following the ways that the Lord has laid forth for us isn't for our good, because it is. If you never murder, you'll never go to jail for murder, right? You'll avoid that very stiff penalty in this world. If you don't steal from your neighbor, if you don't talk bad about them behind their back, if you don't um, always make these comments about how you want their stuff, 
you're going to have a better relationship with your neighbor. Things are going to go better. They're not going to be perfect. And in fact, the world today in the New Testament era is going to hate the church because we follow Jesus. But this was especially true all the more for God's Old Testament nation of Israel. So verse chapter 3, verse 3 made the same kind of comment as verse 3 here, the, the idea that they should be written on the tablet of the heart. That does remind us of Jeremiah 31, that God would write his law upon our hearts. Verse 4 here, saying that wisdom is like our sister, insight or understanding like our intimate friend. That is to be so close with them, uh, to not keep them far away. Don't take the the discernment that you have learned and just forget it, right? You don't want to forget your sister. You want to love and care for her. Uh, keep wisdom close in, in the same kind of a way. Always be wise. Now, again, we've talked about wisdom throughout the book as being a, a reference to Jesus himself. So stay close to Christ. That's not bad advice. Uh, wouldn't quite say cling to your sister, um, but it's the picture I often speak of when I preach is the idea that we would cling to Christ and all of his promises that he's made to us. Cling to them. Cling to his cross because he has given it to you. He has given himself to you for you. And this is a reminder then, verse 5, that wisdom and understanding will keep you away from the forbidden woman who has been discussed in chapters 2, 5, and 6. But the rest of this chapter is going to go into, again, that picture of adultery. He's going to basically, in summary, share that he has watched the young man go towards the prostitute's house or go towards the adulteress's house, be wooed by her inside. And basically, he doesn't come back. It leads to death. Worse, it leads to Sheol. We'll talk about that again in a little bit. We talked about it back in chapter 5 because the same language was used then. So his picture here is that he's like the, that, I don't know, that neighbor that you have in your neighborhood who's always watching out their window and knows everything that's happening with everybody. He's that guy. He's watching out his window, and he sees one of the foolish young men of the community. Instead of being wise, here it is. It's night. It's dark. Where does he go? He wanders down the path that leads by her house. There's general wisdom to this, literal wisdom in this. Men, don't do that. Don't put yourself into situations where temptation can get the better of you. It's not to say you're always going to avoid temptation. But going somewhere alone in the dark where you know you're going to be with a beautiful woman that isn't your wife, not a good idea. For the same reason, it's not a good idea, and parents don't want their like their child to have a, another kid in the bedroom. There's other rooms in the house. Hang out in the living room. That kind of a picture. But he passed near her corner. Nothing good happens at night. That's another thing that parents used to tell children in our culture. Nothing good happens after dark. Behold, the woman meets him. She's dressed as a prostitute. In other words, she's dressed sexually. And that's like all the time for some of our culture these days. Everything's sexual in some regard. She is seeking 
to lead him astray. Now, I think a good family conversation for this text is, does she care about him? Does this woman actually care about this young man? The answer to that question is a definite no. She is using him for pleasure. She is seeking to just please herself and and have that momentary fleeting pleasure, all the while not caring that what she is doing to him is leading to his destruction. We often talk about a kind of the opposite direction in American culture today of the idea that men objectify women. It's true both ways, that we have been trained, I think, as a culture to see each other as objects. It's that focus on me, myself, and I that we are so fixated on. Rather than seeing the neighbor as someone God has created and someone I am here to serve, we look at the neighbor and think, how can they make me better? We pick our friends by the kids that have the cooler toys. Uh, We pick our adult friends by the, the adults who have the cooler toys. And this isn't good. We are not to look at this life as, what can I get out of it? We've gotten everything out of this life that we will. I mean that. In Jesus Christ, everything that can be done for you in this life has already been done. You're going to live forever. You're immortal. Now, in Christ, you are forgiven. There is nothing good that can be done for you that hasn't already been done in Christ. So don't live this life looking to see what you can get out of this life. Look at this life as seeking to share Christ with others so that they too can have what we have, that they too can have that hope, the promise of paradise. She doesn't want that for him. She could care less. She wants to get more out of this life for herself. And again, that's how we often see each other. Sexually or not, we treat each other like objects for our own pleasure. And this is not okay. It's not good. So she lies in wait for him. That's a like an enemy kind of a phrase, right? Your enemy lies in wait to overcome you, to sneak up on you and dis- destroy. Here she does it, and this is destructive in order to seduce. And she kisses him, and then with bold face, that is very confidently, she's, she declares. And notice what she says, I had to offer sacrifices and pay my vows. She's claiming to be religious. She's saying that she made a special vow of some kind, and there are different kinds that could be made to the Lord, but she's made a vow to God, and she's kept it, she's fulfilled it, and at the end of this vow, there's an offering to make, and she's made that offering. Look at how great I am. I am such a holy person, such a good person. Uh, The Lutheran Study Bible, since I, I gave it a little trouble earlier, here suggests the idea that this offering she might have been able to have had some spare meat from it that she could consume. And if that's the case, they called it like a a love, no, a fellowship meal together, basically, that she's offering this man to. So it's not it's not just sex that she's offering. She's offering a meal. She's also offering luxury. As you look at the, the next couple of verses, she's she's building a case to make this temptation stronger. Continuing on that, she says, I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. Notice how she's playing on his pride. He's her target. That makes a man feel good about himself. I've spread my couch with coverings, Egyptian linen, myrrh, 
aloes, cinnamon, fine things, the, the picture of being rich and luxurious, that he's going to get to enjoy a very wonderful evening in several ways. That's she's, she's enticing, seducing him. Much seductive speech, verse 21. And then uh, she invites him to come. They can make love until the morning, basically. She then even convinces him her husband's not around, took that bag of money, meaning he's going to be gone a while until the full moon. In other words, we won't get caught. Uh, how many adulterers have said that and then did get caught? Uh, but she has seduced him. She persuades him. She compels him. And like an ox to the slaughter, he goes. Three animal pictures here. The ox to the slaughter, the, the stag getting caught until it gets killed by the hunter, or the bird in the snare. But all the same. I think the ox going to the slaughter picture probably gives it to us the best. But the stag and the snare, that's the snare language is what Solomon's used so far in this book, so that makes sense too. He doesn't know it's going to cost him his life. Why is it going to cost him his life? He's doing evil. He's rejecting God's ways. And this leads to destruction. So Solomon again pleads to his son to listen to wisdom, not to do this, because it leads to destruction. It leads to Sheol. It leads to death. Sheol sometimes means death or the grave. It can be stronger. It can have the implication of hell attached to it. Uh, The rejection of God and his ways to commit adultery against God by chasing after pagan idols that leads to hell. It leads to the destruction of our faith. And this is, this last paragraph in particular is fitting for Solomon himself. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. And yet that's what he did. First Kings chapter 11, Solomon chased after the many pagan gods that his wives worshipped, his many wives, a thousand of them. And they led to his destruction. They led him down to death and perhaps to hell. 1 Kings 11 does not end in a picture that gives us a good impression of Solomon. For as wise as a man as he was, he earlier, before that, recognized how much danger the adultery idea could cause, the lustful desires of man's heart, but it wasn't enough to guard him as his lust was part of his downfall.